0: Diplomacy in that it helps to facilitate communication, negotiation, representation.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the CUSP show. We talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, innovation, leadership, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, joined by my Not by my regular co host, Tom Richardson, who's off for the holidays as we enter into 2024, uh, but by our producer and student and sometimes co host this year, Mike Shredder. Mike, welcome back.
2: Thank you, Professor. Uh, Like I said, it's always great to be back. And I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. She's got incredible stories to tell and Mm -hmm. obviously a great book that really helps, you know, compare the global and American game of basketball and sports generally. So it's going to be really fun to talk to. Uh, Wednesday day about her book and just kind of her experience. So thanks again for having me on, Professor.
1: Cool. And uh, as Mike mentioned, we have a return guest uh, today uh, who recently authored a book, uh, has spent a lot of time around the global business of basketball and diplomacy, um, obviously topics giving everything that's going on in the world right now that are, are very, very relevant. Um, she came and spoke at our class this past semester in the spring of 2023 as she was kind of parachuting in and out of New York. Uh, it, w- it was great to have her in class for the second time, I believe, uh, but obviously the, the the first time since this book came out, which we'll talk about, which is all about basketball diplomacy. It's called Basketball Empire, but uh, it's really about, especially about the growth of basketball in France and the history of how that's tied to the modern world of the NBA. So, Uh, Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff, welcome back to The Cusp Show.
0: Thanks so much for having me back. It's a real pleasure to be here and chat shop and always always a fun time.
1: Yep. So um, fast forward to today, obviously, the the amazing growth of French basketball, but as it ties to professional basketball, the Olympics. uh, It's a little bit of the history of the book. Um, and, And I would imagine that most people who are fans of the NBA and college basketball in the States don't even know the deep ties of of the French, French culture, basketball in general, the Olympics, uh, both past, present, and future. But tell us a little bit about the book first and, and kind of how the book came about, what it's about. Uh, and then I want to especially talk about your experiences, especially the last couple of years, both in and around French basketball as it applies to the U.S. basketball and then how it all ties to diplomacy, which is kind of a, a big shovel of stuff to handle. But, you know, you're more than capable of handling it all to get us started.
0: Great. Terrific. Well, um, I will start off and uh, certainly feel free to kind of reroute me um, if I stray too far or haven't talked to a certain aspect. But uh, so Basketball Empire was really um, – Something I had been thinking about for a while, I started thinking about it back in 2013 when I was still working as a historian for the U.S. Department of State. And that fall I was uh, stationed in Paris, uh, working on a World War I centennial project for the U.S. Embassy in France. And you know, my, my mission was to figure out what the U.S. diplomatic community did during the first uh, years of the war, when the U.S. was still neutral, Uh, We knew that this was a time that had fostered uh, uniquely closer bonds between uh, the French and the the Americans, even though it was a a time of war neutrality for U.S. diplomats. Um, I was also charged with trying to figure out if there were more diverse voices that could help to tell the story. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, the the history of U.S. foreign policy and the history of the State Department itself is, you know, kind of that, that prototypical, you know, Male, Yale, and white, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, the that's just how it was at that time. Uh, but in the process of that, I uncovered some actually very diverse stories, not just from the uh, females who were within the U.S. diplomatic community, but also uh, one of the very rare African American consular officials uh, posted overseas in France at the time, um, who wound up using rugby to integrate with his local um, French consular district and was a very long time uh, and very well-loved president of the local rugby club for 20 years um, in Saint-Étienne. And, you know, today uh, that rugby club is still around, uh, that's Case Rugby. Um, And so this was kind of the origin story. And from that project, I saw how individual experiences helped to craft the story, uh, particularly (coughs) using sports. And I was watching um, that September Eurobasket play out and watching the French team win Eurobasket for the first time, knowing how it had been a long time since they had won it all, or it was actually the first time that they had won it all. Um, it was rather remarkable. And looking at the roster, I noted that not only were there Team France-style, like Tony Parker, long time at that point, uh, San Antonio Spurs, Boris Diaw, um, but also about half, at least half the team, if not just over, had some sort of NBA experience, whether they were currently active in 2013 or had played several years and then you know, voyaged back over to, to Europe. So I found myself thinking, well, A, to what extent did having that overseas experience and playing in the NBA, how does that mark a player and you know help what they bring back to the team, but also just that individual exchange, you know, that I had seen with the, um, you know, much older content I was working on, you know, how, you know, in what ways is that kind of applicable today in terms of when you're outside of your home environment, whether you're studying, working, in this case, playing professional basketball, that's work, um, you know, what, what about yourself do you discover? And then how does it bring back to your, what you contribute back to the team? Uh, And that was kind of the early origin story of basketball empire. Um, It was increasingly fueled by this question I had of how and why were there so many NBA players from France? Um, And you know, all time at that point in the 2010s and certainly still today, France is the largest pipeline of non-North American talent to the NBA, all time. Um, And when you look at the numbers on the WNBA side, the numbers are not as large, but the NBA itself is half the size, right? With only 144 roster spots rather than 450. So when you looked at the ratios of players, uh, the ratios are, are similar on the women's side as well. And so I was really curious about that because I, you know, my, my home field, I, I, you know, came up as a historian of modern frats and a specialist on French football Um you know, the, the soccer team, How They Make Les Bleus. That was my first book and kind of where I had spent a lot of time developing that expertise and know-how. And I was really curious, well, you know, how different was basketball or are there were there similarities? Uh, and, you know, I kept going deeper down the rabbit hole. So that's kind of the origin story of Basketball Empire. When I got more deeply into the research, it became clear that it was not just the NBA story, that it was a much larger story to be told um the the project uh was kind of off and on for several years uh, and when i came back to it with new resolve in 2020 i decided it would not do to just tell the men's side but to tell the the holistic story so to include women's basketball as part of the holistic story especially by then as i um uh discovered how much women's basketball in France was kind of the locomotive for for several decades of the sport. And, you know, also that it's not just the mainland France to the US story, it is a global France. So taking into account, it's very complicated and complex colonial legacies, particularly um, uh, Francophone Africa. Also, of course, the French Antilles, which are technically a part of um, France today, uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique uh, have contributed significantly to French basketball history since the 1960s. And so, taking it as a whole um, and looking at how and why France has become uh, mm-hmm. that main pipeline over time.
2: Mike? Yeah, my question is just you talk about on your website and in your kind of just your different speeches, the basketball, basketball being a catalyst for change. Talk about that in terms of just you know, have the relationship between France and obviously Africa as well, and just the American game itself and how that you think that's a huge vehicle for change in your retrospective, your experience.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it is a locomotive for change. It, you know, and this is part of, I think the larger kind of hidden secrets about France and French culture is that it's not as insular and navel gazing as I think many people think Uh, French culture can be that at times, but also it can be very extrovert. It can be outward looking and take different um, cultural influences from different parts of the world, whether it's culinary, musical, um, or in sport. Kind of take those influences, work with it, and then export it as something identifiably French. You know, we saw that with the croissant, right, which is not originally mm-hmm. French. Um, you see that influence in music. Um, uh, Elizabeth Becker, uh, the journalist, has done some really excellent work about um, how the French have done this with the tourist, um, um, the tourism industry. Uh, and the same is true in basketball. Same is true in football as well. Um, and so it's not just a uniquely basketball thing, uh, but um, it is a catalyst for change in terms of the, the this quest of how to attain and maintain relevance in international competition. That has driven a lot of the story that basketball empire covers from the 1950s through today. And when you look at, you know, what that means, it means feeding not just the senior national teams on the men's and the women's side, three by three on both sides, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, handicap basketball too, but also all the youth levels. And when you look at where France is continuously Making podium finishes in all of their international competitions, whether it's European, whether it is um, global, it, it you know it, it's not just at the national team level where you know you've got the senior players. It's not just the professionals who go and play overseas, but it's their youth teams who keep continuously putting in podium finishes. And that for me was a little bit startling. Uh, I didn't expect that, but it speaks to the depth. Uh, You see that all the time on the football side, the soccer side, but I hadn't recognized the extent on the basketball side either.
1: Mm. Talk a little bit about um, the business opportunities for NBA players that are kind of known, but maybe even the secondary players, whether it's Nicholas Batum, um, Tony Parker, Boris Diaw, mentioned some others. And even on the women's side, when they go back, Either post career or as they're playing in the NBA or playing on an international stage, so are there are there unique business opportunities that are presented because they are French playing in the NBA or that they are playing, you know, for for the national team? And what what is some of the the business aspects of, mm-hmm. of opportunities presented? themselves? yeah.
0: So I think we are we're starting to see some really interesting trends develop on that. There is no real blueprint because it seems like they're all doing different things. But I think it is fair to say that those who have played uh, at least, what, three years in the NBA and then you get um, the opportunity for professional development and reconversion um, funds. So we see the players who have done that a little less so on the WNBA because the women's schedule is a bit more prohibitive um, and not as many have been going. to their after careers in the same way. It's several, several different uh, avenues. Some, like Tony Parker, become major investors and owners in pro teams, basketball um, or otherwise. And so, you know, Tony Parker went and he bought um, Aswell, uh, the pro team in Lyon, both the men's and the women's side. And it, you know, has put a lot of investment and resources um, into making it one of the best teams in France consistently in and out playing at EuroLeague level and so forth. Um, When you look at where some of the best players within the French Championship right now are playing, they're playing at Oswald or they're playing at Monaco. Those are the two teams that have invested in rosters and and everything else. So Tony Parker is one blueprint and he certainly diversified his business portfolio. He owns, I think, vineyards, Um, he's partial owner of a ski mountain resort um, and all sorts of different things. then you have, the uh, and Nicolas Batum um, is part investor in uh, Oswell. and I think he, for a while, I don't know if he still holds that title today, but for a while he was director of basketball ops for their women's side, mm-hmm. Oswald Feminine, which is where all the best players in France currently are playing. Um, so you have that kind of example. You have the example of uh, others like Boris Diaw, who have gone back and done a... Smattering of different things from being general manager of the national team to, um, you know, he's one of the investors in Bros Stories, which is um, a an media and marketing agency somewhat akin to Players Tribune, uh, mm. where they platform direct from the athlete voices. So that's something that Boris has done. And most recently, he came out of um, basketball retirement. He's playing in France's third division right now. Um, trying to help raise money and draw attention to that team so it can financially survive. So you have that kind of um, example, and then you've got the really, I think, really fascinating case of Mike Jelabel, who played for Seattle back in the day, and I think, he and then he also played um, for a season or two with uh, the Timberwolves. Um, he qualified uh, for uh, the NBA. You know, their their after career plans and use that money to retrain as a chef. And so Mike, has, up until last season, he was still playing pro back in France. He had a, um, um, I think it was a brain aneurysm where he was sidelined medically, uh, but he's been putting in all of the places so that when his official basketball playing career ends, probably very soon, he's going to open his restaurant. Um, you know, he, and apparently he's very good chef too. So there's a variety of those sorts of examples on the women's side. Mm-hmm. A lot of them do a lot more media commentary, um, and they're, I think, starting to develop a little bit more of the business portfolio um, that I think so many of us in the United States are used to professional athletes uh, having here. Mm.
1: Um, good, Mike
2: my question for you is with that i kind of think about the the new generation and you talk a lot about with your business just being an effective communicator through sports diplomacy how can we use like the idea of like effective communication as a newer generation learning from maybe the athletes in france that you've worked with the athletes now that you're working with in africa and even america and be able to help the new generation like myself become effective communicators and be able to do things like these professional athletes have been doing
0: well, I think a large part of that is having a better understanding of, especially if we're working in global sports, what the other is or what their experience is, because what works in one location is not going to necessarily work in exactly the same way elsewhere. So being able to have that uh, degree of um, you know emotional IQ to a certain extent, right, to be able to read the room and to understand and listen to the feedback. This is one thing I I talk a lot about when I talk about sports diplomacy and how to be a better sports diplomat, that it's not just a one-way broadcast, it's a two-way exchange of information, but also the listening part is key for that. And understanding that how we communicate about certain things will work really well in certain situations, uh, but the need for greater sensitivity or reframing exactly um, how you're communicating will will, um, will be you know, dependent upon the, the local context, the local cultures and societies. And so I think that's why it's particularly important for those coming up in the industry, not just focusing on, of course, the, the hard skill sets that go with being a good communicator, but also having exposure to some of those international global cultures um, and contexts so that you're not flying blind um, when you set out to do that and, you know, can start to develop that understanding um, uh, through that.
1: Mm. Um, Take us over to France and walk us through the pro divisions, the number of teams, the experiences that you've had, uh, and even kind of go back to, you know, everyone here in the States understands AAU and sneaker contracts and, and and what is that structure from the bottom up? And then, you know, I think that would be an interesting kind of next question, which we can come back to is, what's his name? Oh, yeah, the, the big guy who's playing for the Spurs, and what Victor Wambiamba is going to do for that whole level from, you know, seventh, you know, you know, second grade, all the way up to the Pro League, and We'll, uh, we'll have a conversation about Wameyama mania and how that played out. But take us through what pro basketball, both for men and women in the club version, is like in France today.
0: So I think it's important to state at the outset that basketball has only been a professional endeavor in France since 1987 on the men's side and on the women's side since about, I think, 1999. Wow. Um, so... That is very important to keep in mind first, even though there have been the leagues and the teams for decades, right? It was either amateur or semi-pro or, you know, particularly with the U.S. players um, in France in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, before full professionalization. Yes, they'd get paid probably, you know, under the table, right? Right. Um, mm. With everything else provided, but I think that it's that's super important to understand first. And second, keeping in mind that you know France is um, perhaps a, a different kind of um, approach towards capitalism uh, than we're used to in the United States, right? Um, it's usually about more for the greater good rather than necessarily the the one individual gain. I say all of that because that helps to explain, uh, kind of ground a little bit, understanding the the professional the professional system in France for basketball. On the men's side, there is Pro A, um, the top division level, and there is Pro B, kind of A and B as the two top professional divisions. Then under that, um, there is National One, National Two, National Three, um, each one descending further down the rung. So overall, there's about five divisions with national three being at the very bottom pro A being at the very top
1: Mm -hmm. on the women's Um, mm side yep Keep, keep going so
0: on the women's side you have um uh two top divisions uh professionally and then i think two two or three kind of Lower down in the in the semi pro amateur levels, only the top flight is fully professional. On the women's side, the LFB, the League Feminine uh, Basket. Mm. Um, So that's that's kind of the the structure for the top flights. I think on the men's side, there's about sixteen teams, Um, and it's both uh, on both men's and women's. It's relegation, right? So at the end of the season, you know, you if you have the league's worst record, you're going to get demoted down to the bottom rung. But also, you know, if you are uh, excelling, you get promoted up to the top tier. David Kahn, when he bought and created Paris basketball in 2017, they began in the lower division and played their way into the top pro uh, division. Um, they just launched their women's team, which right now is I think playing at, Uh, the Women's National One level, if I recall. So it will take about mm, two seasons or so for them to um, play up in, if everything goes well, play and attain that top level. So there's that element to it. It's not a closed system. Um, Also, the other factor to keep in mind, in terms of how this differs from the US system, is that the top women's division and then the top two men's divisions. So for the fully professional sides are required by the French Basketball Federation, the the governing structure of the sport in France, to run um, and uh, to to maintain youth academies. And youth academies is where things get interesting. It's kind of like elite mini boarding schools. If you are detected and pass tryouts, uh, and are um, kind of, if you matriculate into a professional club's youth academy, you are pretty much signing an apprentice contract where you oftentimes you live on site. Some clubs have different arrangements where they're in a more um, collective um, uh, apartment setting. Uh, it, it, that, that structure varies based from club to club and resources, but you're effectively um, boarding, playing, Eating and studying together um, in a specialized section. Your medical supervision, your uh, sports training and coaching, um, and you know all the support um, uh, and you know rehab work that goes in. That's all provided by the team. You oftentimes will have uh, specialized tutors to help you stay on top of your academics because, uh, at least for basketball, uh, there is full. Lip it's not just lip service given to the academic side of the scholarly and the um, the athletic training. Um, it is seen as a key requirement with recognition that even if you sign a professional basketball contract in France, it's probably not a way to earn a livelihood mm. um, simply because the money is not there to the extent that it is in football or in any of the professional leagues here in the U.S. So Uh, or most of them, I should say. So um, there is typically that emphasis given um, on the scholastic side as well as on the sports side. Um, Players usually um, matriculate when they're 12 or 13. And they leave at a variety of different ages just based on how good they are. Um, And the benefits of the youth academy system is that if you're really good, you start to play with the senior pro team. So that's what especially uh, Nicola Batum did, um, Frank Milikina, both when they were 16 years old, their head coach, who is the same guy, Vincent Collet, who is currently the team France coach, handed them the keys to the team. Um, Kind of what he did in Victor Wambanyama's last season in France, Uh, Collet was again his coach, handed these young teenage players the keys to the pro team. Where they have to learn not just to play with grown men, and so you know there's that physical disparity, but also the mental and basketball IQ to go with it. Um, and you know, for Cole, and you know, I've asked him about this. It's very much to try to get them um, to that point where they can they can hang tough um, in the NBA, and not not. It's always going to be a huge transition, right? But that they have that experience um, of playing pro. With you know adults and and can run the game, so the French system is vastly different. Um, there are lots of opportunities simply because there has not been as much done with it, right? And kind of teasing into your your the last part of your question, the Juan Banyama effect I think is still going to be felt for a while. Um, it's not just Juan Banyama, but also Bilal Kulabali, who's playing with the Wizards. Having a really good rookie uh, career thus far, um, and the way that they've been inspiring kids to ask their parents to take them to games. Uh, so, there's uh, the opportunities there. And I think there's a lot of opportunities on the business side in terms of the increased, um, not increased professionalization, it's already pro, but having that ecosystem around it and everything that goes into it. I think there's a lot of opportunities there. There's also, I think, a lot of challenges. Certainly, the bureaucracy—a vastly different system where sport and the sport of basketball is kind of on a very different cultural rung. Um, but I think you're starting mm. to see change, and I think there's a lot of optimism because you know, the, the France is considered the 51st state of basketball. And when I've spoken with a lot of the French journalists who cover basketball and have for decades and have traveled not just France and the U.S., but also throughout the continent of Europe, they say, you know, in France, we are the most American of the Europeans, particularly in our sports and our basketball culture. We find we have a lot more in common with counterparts in the U.S. um, than, say, in other parts of Europe. So for me, that was also very interesting and unexpected, too.
1: Hmm. Um, One side note, I'd just be curious, like, Attendance-wise or arena-wise sides, when you get to the top level, France, men and women, what is it like? What's the is it similar to NBA? Is it similar to kind of like things we've heard in other, you know, other parts of, of FIBA? You know, what is what is that the player and the fan experience like?
0: It's vastly different from arena to arena, from team to team. Um, basketball was long a sport of the provinces, so in the smaller cities where. There's also a little bit less to do than in a metropolis like Paris. So you would typically have stronger um, uh, in-person turnouts for those games. And, you know, some of those stadiums are only 2,500. Some are 5,000, 6,000. You have a few 10,000 seat arenas for basketball. Um, One um, is up in Lille where the first round of the Olympic basketball tournament will be played. Another is in Lyon uh, and then Paris. So um, it's a much smaller um, arena experience, I think, than many would be used to in the NBA. And again, from team to team, that fan experience is going to vary vastly. Um, Around Paris, a lot of the teams there um, have brought some of the kind of cultural game inspirations you see at the NBA. So um, dance teams at halftime they're not cheerleaders per se in the same way that we're used to in U.S sports but a lot of dance troops um, you know they still fire the the t-shirt guns those sorts of things have cotton sway and um, in the provinces that could be vastly different um, uh, so it varies vastly you have some teams such as Mimoge um, in the center that have a very rabid fan base and that's where you get a lot of the ultras coming out than teams where that's just not the case. So it's a it's a wide variety. Um, and so it's hard to really typify what that could be. Uh, they, on Christmas Day, one of the uh, more kind of known uh, basketball halls did burn down um, in the north oh. in Graveline. And so that's been a big uh, story item to date and how a lot of the teams have been lending their support and you know, there's talks now about what are the next steps particularly for this team it's historic arena and you know moving forward so there's solidarity as well
1: what's uh, what's your favorite With, in terms of fan experience the place if you close your eyes and say this is, if you want to go experience professional basketball in France this is the place you have to go
0: I think oh well you know, I still haven't been to all the ones that I would want to go on that. Um, what I liked about Nanterre, which is one of the Parisian clubs, is that it's a very, it doesn't try to be everything about Paris. It, it very much plays to its space. And so I thought that that was, you know, and still kind of has a lot of ties to the older basketball culture that's there. So I thought that was a little bit more of the authentic um, experience. Um, I think if you go to Paris basketball, you're very much getting a global basketball experience uh, mm-hmm. and acknowledging Paris's um, role in this you know growth of global the global game. Um, and I think they do a really good job leaning into that. Um, and the experience is uh, you know a little bit more akin to what we're used to in the US, although on a smaller scale. Um, hands off though, I would recommend going to Bercy, to Accor Arena, for one of the big matches. I went last April for the Coupe de France finals, the French Cup finals, both men's and women's. Um, they were back-to-back a doubleheader on a Saturday afternoon. The place was packed. It was sold out. It was all kinds of fun. Um, and I think that's a fantastic kind of fan experience for what basketball could be like in France. That yeah. was what I saw for, you know, uh, one or two of one Banyamas games last season. That is the exception to the rule, right? Usually it's not quite like that.
2: Cool. Mike? Yeah. My question outside of that is just talking about just how French players have had success in the NBA. Do you think it goes back to the fact that with these academies, they're learning the collective part of basketball versus just learning like the just individual one-on-one skills they're learning more about the team game because people talk about that with guys like Nikola Jokic for example and his success in the NBA I was wondering based on your experience if you've seen that and then my follow-up would be with your work in Africa what have you noticed in terms of trends there as it's really been expanding basketball mm-hmm. there as well with just the NBA's footprint I know it's just different international organizations getting involved
0: yeah I think the very much to your point. I think one of the reasons for French success in the NBA, Euroleague, in the WNBA, in the NCAA is that they do a really good job detecting and then training talent and training it in the team game. Um, that it is about playing as the collective, uh, that it is not about only the individual. And so, there is a lot of focus on the fundamentals, the tactics, techniques, and team play. And you see that in the in the in the guys and the women who come over um, to the US. That's the game they play. Nicola Batum, one of their all-time great players, doesn't have as high a, p- a profile in the NBA, but he is the glue guy. He is the team player. Um, and he gets it done in a way that, you know, others around him. Aren't able to do so. I think that's a very big part of the success. As is the ability to, you know, or kind of be forced to go at your own when you're a teenager in those youth academies, or if you are detected and trained um, and uh, funneled into the federation's the elite training system through INSEP, the National Sports School. Um, again, you're a teenager, kind of boarding on campus, and it's vastly different from the AAU. Um setup, you know, you are not playing all kinds of games every single day. You're training most of it. You'll have one game a week, maybe two max, but a lot of that is dedicated to the training aspect. So I think that's what helps to set them up for success. Also, having the in the youth academy system, even if you're not playing with the senior side, with the pros. You still have access to them. So, the ability to watch them, to see how they're playing, to interact with them and have those exchanges. Uh, that also, you know, those are one of kind of those soft touch things, but can also help significantly if you're 14, 15, 16, having greater um, exposure to and awareness of what different styles of the game are like. And in the French leagues, there's a lot of international uh, foreign players. Not just Americans, although those are usually one of the largest, um, you know, demographics, but also others from different parts of Europe, different parts of Africa. Um, and so having that exposure to how other styles play and what it's like, that is beneficial. Uh, Batum, you know, talks about this, um, in basketball empire about, you know, how that helped him better prepare for and understand what playing in the NBA and against Americans can be like. Um, so that's helpful as well. Um, the Africa side, it, you know, it's, it's interesting in that I think that there's a lot of potential and growth for basketball in Africa, um, mm. not the entire continent. It's a big place, 54 different countries, uh, but certainly it already has a very strong culture in some parts of Francophone Africa, Lusophone Africa, uh, Mozambique and Angola in particular, mm. um, where basketball is the number one sport. Even before football, soccer, um, and so I think those are, and the interesting thing about uh, I know a little less about Angola, but on the Mozambique side, you know certainly b- women's basketball has has been a you know a dominant driver. So I think there's a lot of possibility there. The question is, you know, to what extent are we talking about elite development and results versus creating a professional ecosystem? I think there's. Still a whole lot to be done on the ladder and NBA Africa and Basketball Africa League have been trying to push for some of that foundational work to be put into place. I think with, you know, as much as you can measure, you know, if it's only been a few years of uh, re- reasonable success, I think there's probably a lot more challenges and uh, still a lot more um To go, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there, particularly when you look at the demographics of the African continent as a whole. It's got a huge youth bulge. Those youths are aging into consumer markets. And while there is still significant and extreme poverty, it's also got a significantly growing middle class. So, you know, you look at the metrics there, and I think there's a lot of possibility.
1: Cool. Um, last question about French basketball, and I want to have you talk through some of the the diplomatic work you've done overall. Um, you've seen Victor Wambayama play a couple times in person. I remember you sent me a picture of little kids sitting in the stands wearing Wambayama jerseys even before he got to the Spurs. Um, what does he mean going forward for the growth of French basketball on a global business stage? Does it, you know, amplify, you know, 50X as, again, Jury is still a little bit out and there's a long way to go with him. But when you look... 5 years from now assuming everything plays out well and the Spurs actually win maybe a game or two sometime in 2024 which would be nice um and then, but then beyond it into the the Paris Olympics and then coming out of that what does that look like for the the growth business and and player development possibilities for France on a global stage
0: I think again it holds a lot of potential and opportunity past Past, say, two, three years, whenever I'm back in and around Paris, and, you know, I'm going around in the metro or going to meetings after, you know, in the after school hours or on the weekends, I see kids in the courts. I see kids dribbling with a ball, um, you know, taking the streetcar with their friends. They're talking about Tony. They're talking about Wemby. Um, 15 years ago, that was not the case at all right mm-hmm. it wasn't even a soccer ball you know the the you know Fran- france has a very strong sports history and has contributed a lot to international sport but it doesn't have a sports culture like the united states does and i think that plays into your question about the business opportunity i think there is a lot that can be done and so there is an awful lot of opportunity but i think it Means have understanding the lack of the sporting culture, and even though that is changing, and the hope is that with the Paris Games this summer, that will help to kind of push it, push it over the the hump. Um, but having an awareness of that and having some ideas of ha- you know ha- how to how to take that into account, but try to you know rise to the challenge and um, proceed for that to innovate uh, despite that. I think that has a lot of opportunity particularly when we talk about the incoming generations uh, which are you know ever more global um, and European and not just per se French um, particularly the way that basketball in particular does confer a global identity that in France basketball is seen by opinion makers and elites as um, you know a, you know a pretty pretty decent sport unlike, uh, it's the sport of the middle classes and the opinion makers, yeah. the, the football, um, soccer has long been a sport of the working classes and the immigrants. Even if football is the king in terms of professionalization, consumerism, um, media, all of that, um, it still is looked down upon by so many. Remember France, the class system? Often tops um, other sorts of divisions um, that we might be more familiar with here in the United States. It's still a class oriented society. Um, and so, basketball, even though it's kind of hidden, even though it's not as big or professionalized as football, is still seen by many as a little bit in a more benevolent light. So, you know, I think there's a lot more opportunity there than necessarily going in on the football side. There's also not the same sort of um, negativity, there have been several um, U.S. investment firms and capital venture firms that have bought into historic French football clubs and yep. left and bankrupted them. And that has very, very old historic clubs, and that has not gone over very well at all. Um, we, we don't have that to the same extent in basketball. So I think there's that certainly playing off the momentum of Paris 2024, Uh particularly because both Team France and Team USA are trying to uh, regain their form on the podium. I-, I think that's going to create greater awareness and opportunities. And you know, I-, I think that there's a lot that can be done, particularly when given that the Olympic cycles, both on the summer side, as well as likely the Winter Olympics are continued to be bridge this integral tie between France and the US. Um, I think that businesses will have an easier time working together through those cycles than perhaps other partners um, internationally. There's already a lot of goodwill that's been uh, built in and earned through there. And so I think that can be a benefit uh, in ways that people might not think of initially. Um, The fact that Particularly when we talk in other areas of, you know, the protecting and strengthening democracy, uh, the fact that you know uh, our our friends in France are another bulwark um, uh, in the democratic side, uh, also is food for thought.
1: Cool. Uh, last question from me: Your um, your the other part of, of the work that you do is around diplomacy. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, tremendous upheaval in the Middle East. Um, you know not saying that sport is going to come in and fix all those things but we are we have an olympics not too far in the distance Um, lots of questions about russia and ukraine Um, obviously anywhere where there's any kind of civil unrest you know we've seen the anecdotal stories of how sports kind of brings people and cultures together Um, what are your thoughts on kind of how sports can help us get to a better place in 2024 overall, especially going in to the Olympics and then obviously a World Cup on the other side of that as well.
0: Sports are not the magic bullet. They cannot fix things. They cannot stop a war, unfortunately. But what they can help with, I think, is the healing process um, and the process to getting us to tomorrow. Um, that by forcing us to interact with each other to try to better understand each other, to try to rekindle or rebuild those ties, I think can help with the aftermath because there, there always is an aftermath um, and there is need for that kind of work in order to get us to a better tomorrow. And so I think that's where hopefully sport can play its role in 2024. Um, particularly, you know, we, we talk about sports diplomacy and that it, helps to facilitate communication, negotiation, representation. But, you know, even before that, um, it, it's a facilitator. It's a convening tool. So it can bring people together and to have a better awareness that you don't have to agree with your counterpart, right? If you just look at uh, government diplomacy, state-to-state diplomacy, all the time, uh, you know, it, it's not that two sides always have to agree. You can interact with each other, you can play with each other, and not necessarily have to agree about certain policy stances all the time. Part of the negotiation, the give and take in sports diplomacy is that you work towards common goals, towards common objectives, understanding you're not going to get 100% what you're after, but that you give a little, your your you're, you're competition your counterparts give a little as well and you move closer um, towards that mutually agreed upon common goal and so i do think that sports diplomacy can play that very important role it is not the sole fix it is not the sole solution but i think it can be a very helpful tool as part of that larger arsenal
1: cool um and last thing uh, before we let you go as i mentioned at the beginning before we came on we're doing a little fun thing going forward. We started a couple weeks ago uh, with some of the earlier podcasts. It's called Your Favorite Thing on Your Shelf. And not that we use the video, but you've got some pretty intriguing things on your shelf back there. Uh, when you turn around and look, what, what's the favorite thing that you have on your shelf?
0: So behind me is a mantel place of dead ski boots, um, representing different eras of ski boot technology, as well wow. as a three-by-three three basketball that I picked up at the European uh, three-on-three um, championship in September, 2021. I think that's a tough question. My favorite, my favorite item is perhaps the ski boot because I, I'm mm-hmm. a skier, it's a, a feeling of freedom and uh, exhilaration uh, and reflection as well. But I think from experience wise, it's got to be the three by three basketball. My friend Nabila gave that to me um, when we went to the to the championship in Paris, and it was just an amazing. It was my first three on three big, you know, sporting mega event, and it was just a wow moment. And like, wow, now I understand what everyone's talking about with three by three. Um, just super cool. The you know the festival atmosphere in the stands and outside of the the stands itself uh, the way that the players seem to just really be having a lot of fun even though they were competing at the highest level um that they were playing in tune with the music uh, you know i i was i was definitely a sold believer after that
1: mm-hmm. you know it's amazing uh just to kind of finish on that note i've seen the growth of three by three it's a massive sport outside of the u.s um USA basketball is now just kind of coming around to it because it's going to be in the Paris Olympics and will be in the LA Olympics as well. Uh, it has done reasonably well on the women's side in the U.S., but ironically, the best three-by-three three players, Mike, I've seen in, in the States have been guys who've played in the Ivy League, especially around Princeton, um, and it's a different kind of game that I think is for some reason the American culture hasn't really caught on to, but I think is one of those things that everybody should have their eye on going forward, kind of like flag football, because um, as the Americans improve, so the interest in the rest of the world goes, but it's tremendously successful in other parts of the world already.
0: It is very much. And, you know, people who are familiar with Victor Juan Banyama can look to his older sister, Eve, who is, um, she plays with part of Francis three by three teams.
1: Cool. Um, lastly, Lindsay, um, tell us, where people can find the book where they can follow you on social channels on LinkedIn uh, so that they can learn more and continuing to kind of follow the the narrative of what's going on, not just in French basketball, but in, in sports diplomacy as well.
0: Yeah. You can find basketball empire online uh, at any online uh, bookseller. Also it is in the databases of a lot of independent booksellers. So even if they might not have it in store, most of them are able to get it in stock very quickly. Uh, And I've been encouraging a lot of people to use their local independent booksellers. Also on the Bloomsbury website, I'm on Twitter with Sports Twitter at Limpica7 and LinkedIn, which is where I'm a little bit more active these days. I'm still trying to figure out Blue Sky. Apparently, it's Uh, where most of the academics are. Um, That's so funny because
1: I've lost my account. I didn't lose my account. I got a login and I have to go back and find it because I have not logged into my Blue Sky account yet. So.
0: That's where all the academics have migrated to, even as all of sports Twitter remains well on Twitter. So um, I, I'm trying to figure out that that dual polarity in life for that time being.
1: Cool. Mike, any parting thoughts?
2: Yeah, no, Dr. Grasnov, it was a pleasure to speak with you along with Professor Faberito. Great experiences, obviously, that you've done. An incredible book, which I'm definitely going to be ordering now based on what you've talked about i definitely look forward to reading it and uh you know good luck with everything you're doing and you're doing great stuff so thank you so much for coming on
0: thanks so much yeah consider it your your warm-up for paris 2024
1: cool and and once again uh, we want to thank everyone for listening again our guest today has been dr lindsey krasnov educating us on both sports diplomacy and the amazing stories of, of french basketball and how it translates to the business and the professional side here. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito for sitting in for my usual co-host. Tom Richardson is our producer slash student host, Mike Shredder. Uh, You've been listening to the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, probably one of the first ones you'll listen to in 2024, and we will see you down the road.